0: Past Ball Show. Brought to you by John What the f
1: do you think is my opinion of it? I think it was f- put that in. I don't f- So the tribe drops its third straight on this six to one to the Rangers. For the Indians. One run on, let's see. One hit. That's all
2: we've
0: got. One goddamn hit. ever put out in the 100 years of the present time. Sell the team. Oh Oh, yeah, good morning, this is the Passball Show, brought to you by JohnPielli.com. I'm your host, John Pielli. A ton of stuff I want to get into today. We're going to talk a little bit in in the later part of this hour about a shortstop by the name of Kid Elberfeld and his impact on the game and some of the Hall of Famers he associated with had an impact on as well as Jason Lane and what Jason Lane has done, which I think is fantastic. We spent so much time talking about the comeback of Rick Ankiel and players like that, that were pitchers that ended up transforming into position players and becoming decent to respectable ones. Well, what about the, the power hitting outfielder that ends up making a transition into being a pitcher? You certainly see that a lot less often. So we'll touch on that. We're also going to get into, I want to talk about five teams that are either 10 games over 500 or 10 games under 500. And it kind of flipped the script a little bit. I don't think anybody expected the teams that are 10 games over to be 10 games over or the teams that are under to be as bad. And we're going to touch on them and talk about some of the reasons why. But one of the first things I'm going to do is play an interview I recorded this past week with a pitcher who won over 200 games 100 in the American League, and over 100 in the National League, and had 2,855 strikeouts, which when he retired, was second most all-time to Walter Johnson. And I'm talking about Jim Bunning, and Jim had a fantastic career, one worthy enough to make it into Baseball's Hall of Fame in 1996. And obviously, he didn't stop there when he got involved in politics, and for 44 years was Part of the U.S. House of Representatives, the U.S. Congress, the U.S. Senate. And, of course, a a great secondary career for him. But, you know, he started out as a Hall of Fame pitcher. So the guy's lived a heck of a life. And one of the things that Jim Bunning is known for in a baseball uniform, other than winning 100 games in each league and striking out over 1,000 in each league, was a perfect game he threw for the Philadelphia Phillies in 1964 on Father's Day at Shea Stadium against the New York Mets. And, you know, with Father's Day coming up, you know, if it's Saturday, it's the day before. If it's Sunday, it is Father's Day. Uh, you know, it's, it's good to take a second to just uh, re- remember one of the great pitching performances that stands on Father's Day in baseball history. Not only that, but it was exactly 50 years ago, in 1964, on Father's Day, where Jim Bunning threw the no-hitter. So, happy Father's Day to all the fathers out there, including my own, John Anthony Pielli. But before we go any further, we're going to get into this interview I recorded with Hall of Fame baseball pitcher and longtime member of the House and Senate, Jim
1: Bunning. Good afternoon. This is John Pielli, and I'm happy to be joined by Hall of Fame Major League pitcher Jim Bunning. Jim, thanks for having a couple minutes today.
2: Uh, You're welcome.
1: All right, Jim. The first question I like to ask. This is one of my favorite questions. Uh, obviously, you were around the game of baseball for a long time, and you could trace back from you know quite a quite a while ago. What would you say was your first? 1950. Per- yeah. Exactly. No, absolutely. And what what fascinates me? What would be your first baseball memory, or what could you tell me that you could say got you into baseball as a young kid?
2: I started in the second grade of grammar school, playing baseball, and I've been playing it ever since.
1: Now, would you say that was something that you were just doing recreationally, or was was there anything that happened in your life to make you want to concentrate on baseball? Not a thing. I
2: just love it.
1: So it was one of those things that you just yeah you just picked up a ball you started throwing it around and it just became a, you know kind of an obsession to you something you were gonna you were gonna follow all the way out. That's correct. Now, that's pretty cool and of course, you know you end up uh, you know come coming up you know what what would you say uh what kind of leagues did you play in when you were younger? Were they like recreational leagues? Uh, you know you probably played high school They're right
2: all not jar organized. By uh, the people around my area as a uh, recreational tool for young people.
1: Okay, and. And, and
2: I played in class play D, C, A, not whole league, and then I went into uh, what is called the junior league around here. Junior
1: league being uh, when you're high school age or above. Okay, now did you did you always pitch, or did you play other positions too when you're when you're younger?
2: As good as I can hit, John. I played other positions.
1: Okay. Now, did you consider, was there anything that stood out to you to make you think you had a better chance of, of pitching, or were you know you athletic enough to realize you probably could have made it playing anywhere?
2: No, my arm. Your arm? me that I should play
1: pitch. Yeah, pretty interesting. So
2: I, I was blessed. Blessed with a very sound body and a very very out of order
1: uh, once again, John Pielli here with Jim Bunning. Now tell us a little bit about you know when you when you started playing and you probably noticed at some point you're being scouted and you know you're blessed with, with your arms so other people are taking notice. Uh, take us to the mind of, 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 of a younger kid, a child you know growing up. Uh, what, what were the impacts on what you saw from scouts and people checking you out and knowing that there' was people like games' you were pitching?
2: Well. I was fortunate enough to be uh, good enough at basketball to get a scholarship to Xavier of Ohio of basketball. And therefore, uh, I was scouted all as an amateur up until I went in to Xavier of Ohio as a basketball player. And when I was there at, at Xavier of Ohio, My freshman basketball coach was the varsity baseball coach. A fellow by the name of Ned Walk, who went to Arizona State and coached 25 years of basketball. Unfortunately, he's passed by now, but he taught me and asked me the question, do you want to start... Two years as a varsity basketball player, or would you rather have a chance of playing major league baseball? Because I think you have the talent. And obviously, after my freshman year at basketball, the Detroit Tigers and the uh, let me think, the uh, Cleveland Indians were uh, there to we, we didn't have a draft at that time yeah so uh i uh went and was scouted by those two clubs pretty thoroughly and got a chance uh to play uh, in front of a lot of people at the time, as a uh, undrafted free agent.
1: Now you know as you go through this process. Once again, I'm here with Jim Boning. Um, What did did you find? Did you find that you were you, you were at a point where you saw the, ma- the major leagues, being a major league pitcher, absolutely coming to you? Was there any difficulty well, from no, the time never, you were signed?
2: Never uh, saw it clearly. Always saw it in the picture uh, because I signed when I was eighteen my father made me promise that I would finish college uh, and the Detroit Tigers gave me just enough money as a signing bonus to finish college.
1: Yeah, now you ended up... $4,500 to sign. Okay. Deal, huh? No, no, pretty good deal. And then you were able to finish your college which, you know, is something obviously you're proud of, right?
2: That's your sweet life it It helped me so much in my lifetime uh, to finish and have a college degree, uh, because obviously I would never, never have had a chance to uh, serve in the Congress of the United States or do any of those things.
1: No, absolutely. I tell you, Jim, one thing I want to touch on because I think it's pretty interesting, you know, for you know, all all the kids out there, there's a lot of there's a lot of talented pitchers, position players, athletes in general for through all sports that have a gift. And it, it had to be a tough, a tough time where you're thinking about it. Of course, the Tigers were kind enough to give you the money to finish college, but you know it, it had to. It, you know, you, you look and you see so many people that they feel like they have a decision to make, either to go pro or to finish college. What, what would you, what would you have to say to that somebody that's in that position and may not necessarily get that guaranteed money to pay for their education, and they have to make a decision, either go pro or to go to college?
2: Everybody's getting that money right now <laughs> to finish college if they so to choose. Okay. But I you know, I was not old enough to sign a professional baseball contract without my father's permission. And so he extracted a promise out of me to finish college and I you know, I finished in three and a half years. So I was very blessed. Uh, to have that opportunity, of course, I had to give up my basketball scholarship. Uh, And, uh, of course, uh, that uh, did not play anymore, uh, you know, basketball in college. But I was fortunate enough to be able to play three years of minor league baseball at that time and that gave me
1: an opportunity to advance. Now going back to that time did you find it hard to uh, be able to do everything to go go to school finish college well, and pitch professionally? a sophomore. Oh wow so that, that, that's a lot on your plate at one time huh?
2: Oh yeah well uh, more fun having a lot on your plate than having nothing.
1: <laughs> no absolutely man I couldn't say it better myself. Uh, once again John Pierre here with Jim Bunning. Now as, as you as uh, you know you end up uh, pitching professionally, you end up making your major league debut with the Tigers. Tell us tell us a little bit about uh, you know what your first experience is pitching, you know, professionally, pitching in the major leagues with the Tigers. Well,
2: my first uh, chance to pitch was in the class D league. B, B, A, double A, triple A two years, double A two years. So I had a lot I pitched over a thousand innings in the
1: minor league. Yeah.
2: So when I got to the major leagues, I was, I thought, ready to pitch and ready to start. The trouble is, I was 22 at the time, and my manager was 82. <laughs> and we sure didn't have a lot in common.
1: Yeah, I can but imagine. T.
2: Harris was my manager in Detroit, and so I got sent to the bullpen, to pitch out of the bullpen, which I had never done before. I wasn't very successful doing it. But the following year, after a half a season at Charleston in AAA in the American Association, I got called back to the big leagues, back to the bullpen, where I had some success. I was 5-1 and one in the bullpen. Richie. Short, long relief, whatever they wanted. And then I got a chance to go to Cuba to play winter baseball. And a fellow by the name of Connie Marrero was my pitching coach for the Mariano Tigers. And uh, he showed me how to throw a slider. I had never thrown a slider uh, until that winter. And I came back to the Tigers without any options left in 1957, and they kept me. I pitched out of the bullpen for a month, and on May 2nd, I got a start in Fenway Park and beat the uh, Boston Red Sox. 2-1, 2-1, and got Ted Williams out four times, and uh, stuck him out three out of the four, and they gave me the ball in four days. <laughs> they thought, if I could beat the Red Sox in 10 way that I should be a starting
1: pitcher. And, the and I went
2: on to win 20, and lose 7, start the All-Star game, and won it in Saint Louis and the rest is my career in the major league.
1: No, absolutely. You know, I was about to say, you know, pretty much after that the rest was history. You know, you established yourself, yes, you know, once st- one start against the Red Sox in Fenway Park against Ted Williams and then, you know, from, from that point forward is the baseball career of Jim Bunning. That's exactly right. And yeah, Jim, of course, he ended up uh, pitching several years for the Tigers through 1963, and then you joined the Phillies in 1964. A pretty good team right there. Yeah,
2: there's a little uh, text to that. Okay. Uh, let, me, let me give you a text. I asked to be traded okay. because uh, the manager was Charlie Dresson and he was just like Bucky Harris to me. We, we couldn't communicate. So I asked Jimmy Campbell, the general manager, if he had a spot to trade me, if he would do that. But in the meantime, I stopped smoking. I had smoked from my junior year in high school up until that year. Because I worked in the brokerage business and across the AP wire came the story about what smoking did to your body. And I stopped. And I gained from 175 to 220 that winter. And I worked my, you know, off that winter to lose that weight and get back in shape. And I got to spring training with the Phillies at 200. And I was stronger and I was faster and I could do more with the ball after I got to the National League. And, of course, my success in the National League is dictated from the fact that I quit smoking, gained weight, got quicker, threw the ball harder, and my slider was even better.
1: Well, that's pretty interesting, that.
2: Well, it is interesting because my health dictated my success in the National League, where I had in eight years almost as much as the wins and strikeouts and and complete, you know, everything was more successful than it was in the American League.
1: Wow, uh, I find that fascinating that, uh, you know, you were able to you're able to go through that and I'm sure it wasn't easy. I mean, you'd you get smoked for a while, okay. so something Smoking had become a pretty good habit. The week,
2: during the winter, uh, getting in shape. So when I got to Philadelphia in spring training in 1964, I was ready to go.
1: And, you know, of course, that year as we approach another Father's Day weekend, you know, Father's Day in baseball history, you'll re- you know, you remember obviously you were a part of it, throwing that perfect game at Shea Stadium against the Mets for the Phillies. If you can, Jim, just take us, take us back to that day and just kind of relive the moment for us.
2: Well, I took the team bus with the ball club out to the ballpark. I'm starting the first game of the doubleheader. My wife and oldest daughter had given up to see the game because uh, they lived in, well, we were living in Cherry Hill, which was right across from Philadelphia. And uh, Danny Tater Gale, Tater, and she drove up with my wife. Danny was a, a utility outfielder, uh, first baseman with us in Philadelphia that right here. And uh, I started that, and I didn't feel really, it was 96, which was great for me, because I love the hot weather. It was 96 degrees, and I went out the first inning. I got away with some bad pitches. I hung some sliders to Jim Hickman, who hit him, fouled him back, fouled him back, finally struck him out. Uh, Ron Hunt. Get a ball hard to the shortstop and, uh, and finally got through the first inning. Once I got through the first inning, I got control of my pitches. Where my slider was down and away, you know, I threw the fastball up and in, down and away. And so I had really, really good control that day. I wouldn't say I had my best stuff. But I did have great control. By the fifth inning, I was telling the guys on the bench, hey, we got a perfect game going. Now start diving if the ball's close. I talked about it from the fifth inning on through the ninth, on the bench. Uh, Which nobody ever did. Let me give you the reason why. Three weeks prior to that, I had a no-hitter against Houston Colt 45s at Connie Mack Stadium. And, of course, everybody gave me the silent treatment that I went along with. It. By the eighth inning, the attention had built up pretty good on the bench. And I blew the no-hitter, and we lost the game. And I said, if I ever get in that position again, I'm gonna talk about it, and that's what I did. Yeah, now, think it relaxed the ball club. It drove my manager crazy, <laughs> but we relaxed the team. Because you know, there was not a too hard, difficult play in the game. Tony Taylor made a super spectacular play in the hole on Jesse Gonder on the only straight change I threw in the ball game. And he threw Gonder out and it was a close play at first base. But he threw him out and Gonder couldn't run a lick. And Dick Allen made the play on Charlie Smith in the hole between first and or third and chart. and he made it look routine because it was so hard and he got it And, of course, he threw him out at first base easily. But that was the
1: only two plays that were reasonably hard. All the other 26 outs were easy outs. Interesting. Now, as we hit what is now the 50th anniversary of that game, the perfect game, of course, at Shea Stadium against the Mets pitching for the Phillies. What what do you what do you have to say looking back on it all these years later?
2: I'm glad I was the first since 19, 1880 in the National League to have that kind of success. I thank God for
1: it. Yeah, no, that's pretty interesting. Once again,
2: Think
1: about it. Wow.
2: That ball
1: era. It's just amazing how much time, you know, went by with that, and now, you know, that's something that you have in your pocket that you're obviously proud of all these years later.
2: Yes, and the Phillies are going to have a big celebration this Father's Day, this Sunday, uh, honoring that game.
1: Uh, fantastic, man. Now, you know, you end up, oh, you know, through your career, you pitch for the Pirates, the Dodgers, back to the Phillies, and you finish your career. Once you finish as a major league pitcher, you know, you have over two two thousand strikeouts, over two hundred wins, a hundred wins in each league, a hundred strikeouts in each league. Thousands. Yeah, I'm
2: sorry. A yeah,
1: thousand strikeouts in each league. I'm sorry, I, miss, I misspoke.
2: That's okay.
1: But uh, you know, looking back on that, you know, you you look, you look at your career and in reflection, um, certainly within its time. I mean, if I'm not mistaken, you you rank t- at the time you retired number two all time in strikeouts.
2: Yeah, the Walter Johnson.
1: The so Walter Johnson. Now That's you. Pitch. No, absolutely. Do you look back at the time that it took for, you know, through the Baseball Writers Association of America and the Veterans Committee? Do you think it was too long of a time before you finally got honored in a baseball Uh, soccer
2: game? I was not a pleasant interview after I lost, and that took the votes away. I got 74.4 the year Willie Starger went in. Uh, and that's one vote, and seven New York riders and two Baltimore riders left my name off the ballot my last year of eligibility, so it was a deliberate keep them out of all of Fame. And I got in with the Veterans Committee, which no. I'm as proud of as I can be. because yeah, no One of my idols when I grew up in Kentucky was Pee Wee Reese. And Pee Wee Reese got voted in to the Hall of Fame by the Veterans Committee. And to have your own players that you played against, you in is a little special, even more special than having the baseball writers do it.
1: Yeah, no question about it. And once again, John Pielli here with Jim Bunning. And, you know, talk a little bit about your transition into politics after you were done playing. Now, the first well, question... I, I was a freak. Was, was I that had some friends come and ask me, uh, uh,
2: I was doing brokerage business. I was in the brokerage business for 31 seasons, and uh, I thought they were coming to talk to me about their investment, the three guys that were coming. One was a city councilman, and two were friends. Um, But they were coming to talk to me about running for city council in Fort Thomas, city of 16,000 people and I thought, no way I want to get in politics. I said no. Well they kept coming back. And finally I said yes and they formed a ticket called the People's Ticket. Six people running for council, one running for mayor. The councilman that came with the two other friends to see me who was a guy by the name of Fritz Herschel, Herschel, our undertaker in town. And he was running for mayor and we got six other people to run for city council. First time women were on the ticket and we had two of them on our six People that ran together. And
1: we all won. Now, you look back at that time, was there a turning point um, for you? Because you mentioned, you know, it was kind of a, a, a fluke or maybe a, a freakish thing that you ended up running. Was there a time that you got yourself into it and realized this is something you were you were going to pursue even more? And I'll tell you, I'll tell you how
2: it went. The, uh, I got uh, cards for every household in Fort Thomas, where the the city we were running in. And I let everybody take the cards of people that they knew. And I took the rest and wrote a little note on each one of them. And I got more votes than anybody. The mayor, more than the mayor more than any council person. So it was a little personal touch on the card that got me the votes. And that was the start. Little did I realize I was gonna wind up as a US senator. But in my first year as a council person, my state senator, who I had voted for four times, as a Republican, switched to the Democratic Party so he could be a chairman of a committee. Because, obviously, the Republicans in Kentucky at that time were a very minority group. We were in a big minority. We only had, like, uh, 28% of the people registered Republicans. But, I said, I don't think that's right. I voted for you as a Republican, and you're switching parties. I'm going to run against you for the state Senate. And so I ran, and I went door to door, and I did all the little things that needed to be done to win. And out of 22,000 votes, I won by 396 votes. Wow for the state senate. I was one of nine republicans. There were 38 state senators. We were nine. And I said, you know what? Our leader has been 20 years a state senator and we haven't done anything in the state senate. So I counted and I figured you know, if I can get five votes, I can get to be the leader in my first year for the Republicans. So I counted the votes, and I went to the guys and asked them if they'd for me for leader. And I got to be the leader of the state Republican, nine of us. And I was a little less cooperative than the current leader was. And uh, that started the
1: whole career in politics. And the
2: leader, that's the highest elected Republican official in Kentucky. Not counting the the, uh, federal election. Because we we had people uh, in the federal election. We had a congressman out of the fifth, we had a congressman out of the fourth, we had a congressman out of the uh, I guess six. We had three of the seven seats that the Republicans held.
1: So like, like you said before when you're talking about baseball, one turning point and the rest becomes history. There is the you know, well that
2: was the turning point uh, when i ran for the state senate and of course i ran for governor uh, four years later ever after hearing kite talked those people i just talked about the third district the fourth district the fifth district uh, the sixth uh, at that time we had four for running and uh, we, we, we didn't have a u.s. senator uh, we had two Democrat senators so, I couldn't talk anybody into running for governor. You know, but we all tried. And none of them would do it. So I ran. And I ran a really good race. I lost my mental. to the first Democrat woman who ever ran for governor.
1: Uh, uh, Jim, listen, I really appreciate you giving me time, really great going over all the all this stuff with you, and of course, you know, you've lived a fantastic life, man, That opportunity to be a Hall of Fame pitcher, um, you know, a, a, a state senator, well, congressman,
2: Congress.
1: Uh, it's unbelievable. Uh, I appreciate-
2: well, Thank you for calling. Oh, anytime, Jim, best
1: of luck to you, and thanks a lot again.
2: Sure.
0: Great getting a chance to catch up with Jim right there. Of course, fantastic Major League pitcher, Baseball Hall of Famer, U.S. Congressman, Senator, the whole thing, man. And the guy obviously has lived the full life and a very successful one. But right here in the Passball Show, we're going to take a little bit of a break. On the other side, we're going to get into some topics I mentioned before, talk a little bit about Kid Elberfeld, a little bit about Jason Lane. And we'll pretty much finish up the first hour, breaking down a couple of the teams that have been either disappointing or surprising. Uh, when we did our, our countdown previews, the predictions, obviously mine are a little different than most. But one thing we all had in common is we didn't have a couple of these teams doing as bad as they did, and we didn't have a couple of these teams doing as well as they have. And as as usual, as a surprise happens every year. Uh, on the other side of the break, we'll talk about all that stuff. Uh, plus, don't forget, tweet at me, at John underscore Pieli. Uh, we got any comments about Jim Bunning. In the second hour, I'll be talking with Dave Gallagher. Uh, so any comments, uh, tweet at me at John underscore as we keep the program interactive right here on the Pass Ball Show brought to you by JohnPLA.com. Back after this.
3: This is Lady E, one of the many broadcasters at MTR Radio. If you're listening to mtrradio.com, fantastic. ¡Qué bueno! But if you want to take us with you, we have an app for your smartphone that lets you listen to us 24-7. Just go to Google Play on your Android device or the iPhone App Store and download our app, MTR Radio. Hey guys and gals, want to have a great time dining out while watching your favorite sport on HD TV? Then come on down to Hooters of Princeton, New Jersey, located on Route 1 South in Trenton in the Mercer Mall. Hi, I'm Deja. And I'm Corey. These are great deals all week, bound to whet your appetite and satisfy your hunger. Check out our Bunday Mondays, where you can have a delicious cheeseburger and fries for only $6.99. On Tuesdays, we have all-you-can-eat wings all day, just $12.99 per person or $10.99 for bonus. On Wednesdays, you can get 10 boneless wings and an order of fries for just $6.99. On Saturday, kids eat free for every meal ordered by an accompanying adult, and the meals are served on Frisbee. We have half-priced appetizers from 10 p.m. until close every day. You can then enjoy your cold draft beer with our mouth-watering crab clusters for only $5. Remember, we are located in Trenton on Route 1 South in the Mercer Mall, just south of Quaker Bridge Road. For any information, call us at 609-520-WAIT. That's 609-520-9464. So come on in and watch your favorite football team while having a great meal, served up by the nicest and the hottest girls anywhere. Hope to see you there!
0: Taste is empty vlog. Go ahead, laugh,
1: laugh all you want, but the fact of the matter is this is, this is the setting for the greatest
0: story ever told, okay? Taste. Empty Bases empty blog. 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 Welcome back, John Piele, Passball Show, right here on the MTR Radio Network, brought to you, of course, by JohnPiele.com. To check out Bases Empty Blog, of course, you go on JohnPiele.com. Uh, the blog section, i will say Bases Empty Blog. Uh, You can pretty much type any player or event into the search engine that's up there on Bases Empty Blog and either an article or a series of articles that I've written over the past three plus years will come up and it's something I'm I'm proud of and I'm going to continue to build on and continue to touch on a bunch of different topics and try to talk about or cover the entire history of Major League Baseball. And it's it's hard to do. I mean, you go back to the 1880s, which I've spent a lot of time there, the early part of the 20th century. And uh, what what bothers me is that there has not been enough stories, and there isn't enough, that you could go out there and look and go to a site to talk about the history of baseball and kind of have it put at you where it can be taught in a lesson like it would if you're in a high school or a college and you're learning about world history or U.S. history. Baseball history, to me, is just as important. It's just as powerful, and it traces back just as long. Um, I mean, a lot of people don't realize that baseball, the history of baseball, the origins of baseball, goes all the way back to the Civil War. And let's be honest, I mean, if it wasn't for the Civil War, the United States as a country wouldn't be what it is right now and would not have had a chance to become that top nation and the world leaders that they really are. So, I mean, to go back that far, we're talking about baseball being played at that time. And that's something that's always fascinating, I mean, something I'm going to continue to, to report on and discuss. The first thing I want to get into today, I teased it a little bit in the first part of the hour, is a shortstop by the name of Kid. Elberfeld. And he was kind of a tough guy, probably in the lines of a Ty Cobb before Ty Cobb. You'd probably compare him as both a player and a manager to the uh, fiery type of a uh, Billy Martin. Uh, of course, ma- managed the Yankees for five times and was a successful second baseman in the 1950s with them. But, you know, certainly a guy that was known for having a temper. The Tabasco Kid, as he was known as, was originally signed or brought in by the Philadelphia Phillies in 1898. He played for the Phillies in 1898 and the Reds in 1899, but only to prosper in this new league called the American League, which started in 1901. Playing for this new team called the Detroit Tigers, he hit 308 with 76 RBIs in 121 games. Among things longtime Tiger fans should know is the fact that he was the team's first 300-hitter in the history of the franchise. One thing that Albert Fell was known for was his physical abuse on umpires. In spite of hitting 341 through the first 35 games of the 19-3 season, an incident in which Kidd attacked an umpire left the Tigers organization to want to trade him he was on board. In fact, according to reports, he intentionally botched plays and kicked balls around to get himself traded. Manager and future builder of the early 1920s New York Yankees franchise, Ed Barrow, made the accusations. And ironically, Elberfeld was traded to the New York Highlanders, where he spent the next six and a half seasons. Kidd was also known as a violent player on the field. In fact, during Ty Cobb's rookie season, Ty came into second base with a head-first slide. Elberfeld made sure that he placed his right knee into the side of Cobb's neck. From that point forward, Ty Cobb refused to go into any base head-first, generally going in spikes-up. While Elberfeld showed his share of aggression, he did have to defend himself against aggressive base runners, many of whom came into second with the high spikes. His legs were severely cut up due to the many spikings, and he would pour whiskey on his legs to close the wounds. Among things the kid was known for was getting hit by pitches, something he led the league in more than once. In fact, his 25 hit-by-pitches in a single season stood as the Major League record until Don Baylor got hit with 35 in 1986. His 165 hit-by-pitches for his career currently rank him 17th in the history of Major League Baseball. As I veer off for a second, a couple little side notes, Philadelphia Phillies second baseman Chase Utley is just two behind Elberfeld in all-time hit-by-pitches. And amongst those who rank ahead of Elberfeld are Derek Jeter, Alex Rodriguez, and Carlos Delgado. While with the Brooklyn Robins organization in the minor leagues later on in his career, and this is after Elberfeld had his success with the Highlanders and was kind of bouncing back and forth between the minors and the majors just trying to play, he ended up with the Brooklyn Robins organization. He struck a very good friendship with a young kid by the name of Casey Stengel. In fact, it was Elberfeld who was in his late 30s who would become a very good influence on Casey who was in his early 20s. Kid would talk and Casey would listen. Absorbing as much as he could from the man. Of course, Casey would later be known for what he had to say, so his quietness seemed to be just an act. Elberfeld served as the player manager for the Highlanders in the 1980 season when manager Clark Griffith resigned. The unfortunate thing for him is that he led the team for the rest of the season in 1908 to a 27 71 record. And it, the winning percentage, yeah, 276. And that obviously kept the, the uh, future Yankees, the New York Highlanders, for bringing him back the following season. But after he was done playing in the majors, because he played briefly for the Robins in 1914, after not playing in the bigs in 1912 and 1913, he played and managed many more seasons in the minors and signed a shortstop by the name of Travis Jackson to his first pro contract. He introduced Jackson to New York Giants manager John McGraw, who would use him as a starting shortstop the following season, the 1924 season in which the Giants lost the World Series to the Washington Senators, ironically, on a Game 7 error by Jackson. Albert Feld received some consideration for baseball's Hall of Fame, and if you've followed the past ball show over the last couple weeks, you, talk, you hear me talk about several older players that got consideration for the Hall of Fame. Some of them made it, some of them didn't. And I've been trying to break down why or why not in regards to baseball's Hall of Fame for these players. But uh, he did consider get some consideration, and let's be honest. I mean, as, as an influence on baseball, listen, he changed the career of Ty Cobb and probably made Ty Cobb a better ball player. But Elberfeld's performance on the field, I think, was more of a disappointment. A guy who had a lot of hype and, in fact, the Philadelphia Phillies chose to sign Kid Elberfeld instead of future Hall of Famer Hannes Wagner. So if you look at the numbers of his career, check it out on BaseballReference.com or check out Base's Empty Blog, JohnPLA.com. I got some stats available. Guy played well for a good period of time but was nowhere near a Hall of Famer and, in my opinion, a little bit of a disappointment. Once again, John Pielli Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Next thing I'm going to jump into, I'm going to talk about left-hand pitcher Jason Lane's unprecedented return to the big leagues. I was very disappointed to see the San Diego Padres designate Lane for assignment last week. The converted outfielder threw four and a third scoreless innings, given over two outings, giving up just one hit in the process. The move was expected, however as the Padres were just using Lane to help out what was a depleted bullpen. Lane's career has been an interesting one, no doubt. Originally drafted as an outfielder, the 38-year-old hit as many as 25 home runs in a season. With his outing last week, it was his first taste of Major League Baseball since 2007, which, ironically, was also with the San Diego Padres. When we think of players making transitions into pitchers, it's usually the other way around. Babe Ruth was obviously a very good pitcher, but became a legendary hitter. You've heard me on the past ball show talk about Smokey Joe Wood, who was a better pitcher and finished off his career as a decent outfielder for the Cleveland Indians in the 1920s. Of course, we know the story about Rick Ankiel, and a similar one of Aaron Lowen, with the latter actually making a comeback as a pitcher once again. While there's examples as position players becoming two way players, such as Brooks Kieschnick, who was a guest on the Passball Show. If you want to check johnpelli.com, I got the interview with Brooks if you want to listen to it. But, you know, two way players that both pitched and played the field. Micah Owings, who was an outstanding hitter, but probably wasn't as good of a pitcher, attempted to play the outfield full time in 2013 and actually hit two sixty five for AAA Syracuse in the Washington Nationals organization. However, he's currently trying to pitch again with the Miami Marlins system as we speak. There are several examples of position players who are very good pitchers in college. There's Marquise Grissom, John Olerud, and obviously neither of them came close to pursuing that in the major league. So you could certainly make a case that what Lane has done is against the norm as converting from a position player to a pitcher is much less common than a pitcher converting to a position player. So what Lane has done absolutely deserves merit, especially at his age. The thought of Lane being a pitcher did not come completely out of left field. No pun intended. He was a star two-way player at USC, and in fact his relief in the College World Series of 1998 led the Trojans to a 21-14 victory over Arizona State for the national championship. Lane, who, like I said, throws left-handed and bats right-handed, is one of a few major league players who do that. Remember, a guy like Ricky Henderson comes to mind. Uh, You seldomly see players that throw left-handed and bat right-handed. Somebody I could think of right now, Ryan Ludwick of the Cincinnati Reds, but it's not very common. Let's get something straight. The Astros, when they drafted him in the sixth round of the 1999 draft, had every intention of using him on the field and for his bat. He made his major league debut in 2002. He would become an everyday outfielder for the Astros, with 2005 being his best season, where he had 267, 26 home runs, 78 RBIs. It was also the season the Astros made it to their only World Series, where they lost to the Chicago White Sox. Lane would play in the NLDS and the NLCS for the Astros in 2004, and the NLDS, NLCS, and World Series for the Astros in 2005. He hit four home runs, including a home run, in the 2005 World Series. Lane's 2006 season was disappointing as he hit just 2-0-1, with 15 home runs, 45 RBIs, and 112 games. The Astros gave him every opportunity, and after batting just 175 in 68 games in 2007, his contract was sold to the San Diego Padres, whom he batted two times for. The fact that he could hit for power in the minors meant that he would probably be able to find a job. He played in the minors for the Yankees, the Red Sox, the Blue Jays, the Marlins, and the Blue Jays again, and in Arizona before landing with the Sugarland Skeeters in 2012. He made the transition completely into a pitcher, and by 2013 was a top pitcher in the entire league. He signed a deal with the Padres and started the 2014 season in AAA. The reason I think Lane will be around for at least another shot is because the niche he's found. He is now a left-handed specialist, a role which has one of the highest demands in the entire sport. There is also no question that the Padres will remember him retiring all 10 batters he faced in his first outing, only to give up a single hit in a scoreless inning his next time out. The Padres had 40-man roster issues. Otherwise, Lane would probably have stayed on the 40-man roster. While I expect to see Lane up again, I wonder if he gets the same attention a guy like Rick Ankiel got. It is understood that Ankiel had a more dramatic letdown as in front of a national audience he threw pitch after pitch to the backstop during the 2000 NLCS. He had the better story, but is the bigger is it bigger than the story of Lane making a transition into a pitcher? I truly don't know the answer to that, but I hope more take the time to acknowledge what Lane has done. I mean, he's a guy that's certainly worth rooting for. I would expect to see him in the major leagues again this season. He uh, accepted his outright assignment off the 40-man roster to go pitch in AAA for San Diego again. And if you follow every team, they have a series of relievers that they like to kind of caddy back and forth. There's no doubt that they're going to need another pitcher like that. And I hope to see Lane as an established major league left-handed specialist. Certainly a job that he can do. And if you just remember all the different pitchers that have done it, uh, the Rick Honeycuts, the Jesse Orozco's, the Arthur Rhodes, the veteran left hand specialist. Well, Lean's in that category now. He doesn't have the experience that the other guys have, but he's, you know, at age 37, he, he's probably in a stage where he could get into what could be a great second part of his career. Once again, John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. I do want to send a big thanks out to Jim Bunning for being part of the program in the first hour. Second hour, we're going to speak with former Major League Outfielder Dave Gallagher about his baseball academy over in Hamilton, New Jersey, and we're going to get into a couple other things going on. I do want to go over the career of the late Bob Welsh, obviously condolences to his family who passed away uh, last week. We'll talk a little bit about that. We're also going to talk about the teams that I was telling you about before, the the two surprise teams that are doing very poorly right now, and the three surprise teams that are doing very well, all either ten games under 500 or over 500, and I don't think we could have predicted that either way. So uh, just stay tuned. Five minutes, MTR break right here on the other side. Ton of stuff to get into. Pass ball show, brought to you by JohnPelli.com. Don't forget to tweet at me at John_Pelli as we keep the program interactive. And I'll see you on the other side of the break.
3: Rock over London, rock on Chicago. American Airlines, we mean business in Chicago.